yeah, we will have a day where you go to your psychiatrist, you say, I'm depressed. And they say, hey, I've got the perfect drug for you. I'm going to write you a prescription for psilocybin therapy mm-hmm. and go and, and they're cured and, and can live healthy, productive lives. All right. Hey, guys, welcome to Mushroom Talk. I'm your host, Alejandro, where we speak about the psychedelic space through the lens of the mushroom medicine. Our guest today is Tim Schlitt from Palo Santo, is a venture fund that invest across the psychedelic space in an incredibly transformative way. Welcome, Tim. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm, I'm fantastic. How about you, Alejandro? I'm doing great, bro. This has been an incredible week for all things mushrooms and psychedelics. And we're just really honored to have you here because you bring an incredibly wonderful and refreshing perspective to the investment strategy around the psychedelic space. And we, I know that you and I, we got connected through a mutual friend. Shout out to Jeff, if you're listening. Thank you so much. And it, I just loved everything that you guys were doing around Palo Santo, your approach, especially your story as to how you went from investment banking to now being in venture capital. Um, I'd love to hear how that transition happened and how did you yeah, get into the yeah. psychedelic space, right? How did you come out of the psychedelic closet? Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember someone someone made the joke of kind of going from suit and tie to tie-dye, you know? I mean, my my old day job used to be, it literally was, you know, investment banking, they're on the suit, tie, you know, which which even, you know, now in, in the age of COVID feels so antiquated now. But yeah, I guess I'll start kind of, you know, my background and how I got into this crazy world of psychedelics and psychedelic investing. But um, started my career at JP Morgan in their investment banking group, in their healthcare group, and then soon after jumped over to an investment bank called Greenhill, um, which also had a, lo- a thriving life sciences practice. So always was focused on healthcare throughout my career. And then after that, spent a number of years in private equity, then jumped from the sell side to the buy side and spent time largely in healthcare services. So less life sciences and more of that biotech pharma realm and more focused on healthcare delivery, site-based models, clinic-based models. And, uh, you know, thinking about healthcare tech even. So a lot of my career was in healthcare, which actually has paid quite a bit of dividends now that I think we're seeing psychedelics go quite a medicalized route versus the more recreational route that we saw cannabis go. Um, and so it's, it's certainly paid off. But, you know, how I got into this crazy world, I'd say it's really was, you know, via that through line of healthcare experience all throughout my career and just my life. Um, I've had a lot of family members who have been doctors and scientists and I always joke, the reason I got into healthcare banking was actually my great-grandfather, Arthur Zintek, worked in Jonas Salk's lab. So he helped them vaccine, yeah, for polio. Um, he did some really seminal research on how it spread. People at the time thought it was spread by flies. He found out it was spread by fecal matter, actually, hence why you know kids got it so often during the summertime in pools. But not to go on too much of a tangent there, my grandmother wanted me to be a doctor my entire life. And my dad was in finance. So I had this inherent tug, but always stayed close to the scientific field and, and always really liked science. So in going into banking, my compromise was, okay, I'll focus on healthcare, but really always have loved the science, you know, love the field of science, biology, chemistry, you name it. And in particular, I've been fascinated by psychology my whole life, having a number of family members who suffered from mental health issues. I always knew the standard of care was tremendously lacking in a lot of ways. Always thought there's got to be a better way and just enjoyed reading about psychology, whether it was Amos Tversky, Danny Kahneman, Paul Ekman, you name it. Just that was always a side passion of mine. And then about three and a half years ago, serendipitously came upon the Michael Pollan book, How to Change Your Mind, about this nascent field of psychedelics. And this was something I had always dismissed. I mean, I think anyone who knew me in high school or 
or college would not, wouldn't believe that I was, you know, in, in the field of psychedelics now, we'll put it that way. I mean, yeah, didn't use it recreationally, but um, once you dug in, once I dug into the evidence, it was incontrovertible that there's something here. What was that canary in the mind? What was that? Yeah. Like? Yeah. Kind of that inflection point. I mean, it was really, I mean, the research from Roland Griffiths, you know, Robin Carhart Harris, Matthew Johnson, all those guys who really pioneered this um, is incredibly compelling. I mean, when you see depression scores, having friends who've gone on SSRIs and family members who've gone on SSRIs and see them lose their libido, you know, have a whole host of other nasty, nasty side effects from those weight gain, you name it. And also for many of them as as many as a third or two thirds even have it not even work, you know, and then compare that to psychedelics where immediately following a session with psilocybin or as in the measure is we call it quids or, or hams. Also, there's a number of depression score criteria, seeing that drop drastically from very high to basically, you know, mild to non-existent and then stay that way for six months afterwards and beyond it's kind of that holy shit moment of wow like the, this actually works it's it's immediately effective it doesn't take a long time like antidepressants do um so it's rapidly effective and it's durable as well which i mean i, I hate to call something a miracle but it, it feels like a miracle in a lot of ways um, so the evidence was really compelling and then you dig into other psychedelics and see them being far more effective than what we currently have as the standard of care and say Hey, there's something here we can't ignore. That's for sure. Yeah, man, that's really wonderful. And you touch on a point. It's like, it's nothing short of a miracle that's always been right in front of us. You know, I noticed yeah. something that uh, you shared your deck with me to kind of let me know what it was. I, I love the fact that you showed up on the history of like the psychedelic stages of what where has yeah, been. Yeah. And it's always been in front of us. Right. And so what do you say to, from an investment standpoint, what does that tell you? in regards to the monetization aspects, is there, as an investor, you have to see an ROI, right? You have to come back and return the fund. So what is your argument to say, like between the tension that's like, Hey, this is natural. This is supposed to be healing properties to the, Hey, let's try to see how we can patent, how we can generate as much profit as possible and somewhat mimic pharma when the whole concept around psychedelics is to combat pharma. So what do you say to that from an investment standpoint? No, it's it's a good point. Well, we do forget that pharma advanced psychedelics at a certain point in time. I mean, it was what Santa Fe acquired them. I'm, I'm blanking on the name where Albert Hoffman worked, you know, that pioneered LSD and, and psilocybin. So I, I put pharma less in a, a immoral versus moral lens and view it more as just amoral of, you know, there's times when pharma does bad things and there's times where we do have blockbuster drugs. But I will say that can't patent psilocybin and cannot patent mushrooms. Also, I mean, there's, there's no way that can possibly happen. It's genericized. Now there's anti-generic strategies, um, whether it's via polymorph form or um, what we call REMS, risk evaluation and mitigation, which is sort of an implicit IP or method of use, you know, the, the method of delivery you use. And that's kind of where that the polymorph form kicks in. Um, there's, you know, some IP you can build around that, but in no way can pharma block someone from, you know, if someone grew a mushroom in their backyard, you know, grew, uh, you know, psilocybin cubensis and, and took it, you know, it's, it's not like a Thai life sciences can go after them or compass pathways can go after them. So from that end, I'm not too worried about that tension that in some mm-hmm. way it's block, um, you know, recreational use. And I think recreational use can be in a very different context from, you know, these being prescribed for a specific indication and, and really having some stringent protocol around those. So if a recreational market does open up, I see those as, as complementary in a lot of ways. So it's, that would be my take on on really that 
that IP angle from an ROI standpoint, because you did hit on that. I know this is a little bit of an indirect answer, but it's interesting you bring it up. You know, there's are these questions of, okay, the IP position of psychedelic biotech businesses is going to be more tenuous than you normally see in biotech, where a lot of the IP is around new chemical entities. Now, my, my counter argument to that is yes, you know, I think the IP position is a bit worse than a typical biotech company you see. But on the flip side, your odds of approval are significantly higher on psychedelics. So that timeline I showed you, I mean, we have over a thousand research papers across 40,000 human subjects. Now, a lot of those weren't double-blinded research and, and trials necessarily, but it's still, it's a large, that's a large data set there showing that these are really effective. And so the odds of approval on most of these compounds, I put it very high compared to your typical pharmaceutical compound, which is about an 8% success rate from sort of discovery all the way through to commercialization. So I, from an ROI standpoint, you know, in biotech, you're looking at high probability and I put these in there. Oh, that's so well stated, man. And I appreciate that, that candid answer. And so, you know, you hit on a really good point. Like education is such a big thing, right? Like we had like the drug on wars, we had Nixon and then it just went off. And now we're entering this new, what we like to call the renaissance of psychedelics, right? And where we have kind of like our parents' generation that are like, no, 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 you can't do touch psychedelics, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, <laughs> like we are now seeing that same generation say, well, my kids are using it. So as an investor standpoint, I know that you mentioned that you were invested in Double Blind, which is an amazing resource. It's a, it's a media company that focuses on psychedelic education. So how do you see the role of like the Double Blinds of the world playing a key role in educating the mass market? And how are you guys from an investment standpoint looking at education that's not just from an academic or medical standpoint, but also from a cultural standpoint? It's, it's a really good question because you have this weird generational gap and, and we faced it with our materials too. If you have some people, one group of people who are like, you shouldn't even put the term psychedelic in your, in your investor materials, like use neuropharmaceuticals or something, everyone's going to cringe. And then you have on the West Coast are like, wait, you're using, you're saying psychedelic therapeutics, like you're saying pharmaceuticals, like, no, take that up. So it's been this interesting tension, but in terms of education, you know, yes, we're investors in double blind. I think they have a great platform of just covering the untold stories and um, really keeping some of the deep cultural roots that these hold as well. And, and not letting us forget about that. I mean, I sometimes go down my biotech rabbit hole um, a little too deep. And I've always got Shelby Hartman there on the other end to kind of pull me out, which which I appreciate that. Companies like that, there's a lot of event hosting businesses out there. I haven't really invested in those from a from an investment standpoint. It's tougher to see potential return there if everyone's kind of, you know, hosting webinars and, and you name it. But I see that as a really key educational tool. And then the other thing I do still think going back to the, you know, the biotech angle here, I call it your grandmother problem of how, you know, if your grandmother is going through palliative care, you know, sort of end of life or has life-threatening cancer, how do you convince someone like that who went through the Nancy Reagan era to take psilocybin when you know it would incredibly benefit them relative to any other, you know, anti-anxiety compound, anything they may have in their arsenal currently? And I still think having a drug go through, you, the, the legalization wave can take hold, and I think it will take hold, and I think that'll be a good thing. I still think doing that, though, you're going to have a stigma associated with it that a lot of people are never going to get over that hump. And we've even seen that with cannabis. So people, some people still recoil at it versus a compound that goes through rigorous FDA review. You show in phase one, it's not toxic. You know, you demonstrate high efficacy. You know, having that stamp of approval, I think, means a lot to people. And also the educational hurdle is a lot lower when you can sort of just say, hey, it's an FDA approved drug. 
rather than saying, hey, let me send you these 10 research papers and these five articles and go read up on it yourself. For someone we've, you know, we know in the media age, people veer towards news they want to hear um, and just don't even read things they, they don't want to hear. And I face that trying to educate family members. I sent them plenty of research and they're never going to read it, you know, because they, they don't want right. to versus saying Scott Gottlieb at the FDA, you know, former FDA administrator prove this, I think means a lot more. So I think that'll be a key tool in getting these over that cultural barrier. So what I'm hearing from you is like having the signals, the mainstream kind of governmental approval stamps. Um, and so like what I think, yes, yeah, superficially, I think that carries a lot. I, I can have my own opinions of I, I wish it didn't. And, and, you know, you're centralizing this with a certain authority. But I do think superficially, it has a lot of meaning with a lot of people, just like a college, de- you know, college degrees do or higher education degrees, you name it. It's a lot easier to show that to someone than being an autodidact. Yeah, that's awesome. And great point. Um, last question on the, on the theme of uh, education and government regulation before we dive into how do you identify entrepreneurs and things of this nature more more in the wheelhouse. But as a VC, seeing the decriminalization in Washington, D.C., seeing Ann Arbor, Michigan, Oakland yeah. coming through, uh, Oregon just Oregon, legalizing it just clearly, right? So now we have Florida, Connecticut, Hawaii putting in uh, legislation to legalize it, at least from a medicinal standpoint for uh, plant medicine, specifically psilocybin. Like from a venture capital perspective, we're seeing a bunch of people flock to Miami, right? For this, for this very reason, uh, for yeah. things, shout out to Twitter and Mayor Mendez and Suarez and things of that yeah. nature. So like, what's exciting about the legalization from, a, from an investor standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I think the market opportunity around legalization is probably significantly larger than pharma. I've, I've heard figures stated as, as high as 20 to one in terms of market size relative to pharmaceutical use cases. So, I mean, the really exciting part of it is that it's it's just a significantly larger market and, and um, that, that presents a much larger opportunity. Now, the flip side where I get a little concerned is where do you start to have race to the bottom dynamics, you know, of it's, it's kind of like we saw in cannabis. If you have certain areas that we can you explain to our listeners who may not know what race to the bottom is. Uh, yeah. Just that the market. Yeah. The market becomes so saturated with so many competitors, you know, targeting one thing that it drives down prices. And then a lot of people go out of business and it's, um, you know, you have a bunch of agents operating independently for their own self-benefit, but collectively it's actually a net negative. You kind of have an externality there. So that's my only fear versus, you know, some of the more biotech oriented plays, you know, you have some natural protection, you have a natural barrier to entry around the cost of clinical trials. Um, my only, my other comment on the legalization play though, will be that a lot of that's around psilocybin. I do mm-hmm. see, I think there's a lot of other compounds out there outside of mushrooms, um, some within mushrooms, we haven't explored Amanita muscaria that much and, and you name it, but other psychedelic compounds that probably won't get legalized um, in our court sort of orphaned. I think LSD carries a lot more stigma around it still than psilocybin does. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity, you know, around those more in the, the biotech world, certainly. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I will, I'll cap that off with saying I welcome legalization. I think, mm-hmm. I personally think that with pharmaceutical models will complement each other, that someone can go through a one or two time treatment. And then if you want to explore your consciousness more deeply or go to a retreat center or do it more recreational sense, that'll be open. Um, And in a lot of ways, you get the best of both worlds is how I'm viewing it as an investor. What's your standpoint on the importance of integration and like doing the integration protocols and the exercises that are needed? 
It's interesting because on one end, it it makes it so cost prohibitive to have all this psychotherapy and, and, you know, all this integration and everything that we're currently, that's the current protocol most of these are being advanced with. So from a market standpoint, you like to hear it when something can be offered, you know, at a lesser cost for patients, and that makes it more affordable and more accessible for people. And I, I think that, you know, very much so for the greater good. So that's on one end. At the same time, though, clinical outcomes are definitely associated with integration. And so if that's mm-hmm. what you're going for a true remission, I think it's important. Now, I think there's probably areas where we can tinker with and we'll slowly find that of ways to reduce how many psychotherapy hours go into this, you know, how many doses you have to take, you name it. I think there's an abundance of caution mentality with sort of this first generation of psychedelics. And over the coming years, that's going to get chiseled away at um, over time. But for now, I'll, I'll toe the party line and say that it's, I, I agree, it's important. And there's, you know, you can't just hedonistically take a drug and, and hope for the best. I think there's probably a lot more to it um, from a psychoanalytic angle. And so, yeah, I, I do think it's important. Yeah, that powerful answer. Thanks, Tim. And switching gears now to a more uh, entrepreneurial focus. What yes. are some of the key traits that you you look at from a founder perspective? Because I know you guys invest in pre-seed, seed, series A. You guys invest in mm-hmm. the whole spectrum all the way through growth uh, stage. So yeah, like, like walk me through your process of identifying a great founder at a pre-seed, seed, series A. I mean, a lot of it is team. At the end of the day, it really does come down to the founder. And there's a lot of sniff tests. I think you can you can test people out pretty quickly, whether they know what they're talking about or not, especially in the biotech world. It's such a regulatorily complex domain that when you have people entering from the outside, I don't dis- I don't dismiss them. I think everyone's got to get hurt out. But you know, if you're not coming from some sort of a pharmaceutical healthcare background, it's a lot tougher. I think it's tougher to enter this world and in six months learn everything you need to know uh, to, to start a biotech business necessarily, unless you're backed by the right advisors. So first thing is the core team. What's their background? I really like to see people with some sort of pharmaceutical experience or, or biotech experience, their advisors and understanding how involved their advisors are, you know, their area of research and expertise and, you know, how applicable that is. And how, and how important is advisors, like the role that they play within a newcomer into the space? I'd say pretty, pretty darn important. I mean, you know, that's, especially if they're advancing some of that advisor's research, I mean, really understanding their involvement um, is mm-hmm. important. So we're investors and we're seed investors and we led the round on a company called Reset Pharma, which is advancing Stephen Ross's seminal research on psilocybin for cancer-related depression. And that was a big diligence topic was, okay, you know, your licensing is research. Um, How involved is Stephen Ross? How active is he going to be? I mean, he really was core to that program and, you know, making sure that he's going to continue leading that through, you know, phase 2B and into phase 3. So it's definitely important. And then the last thing I'd say we want to tease out is the science. I mean, trying to get a pretty good understanding of is there precedent for this drug for your, the indication you're trying to target? Um, and if there's not much I can find out there in the public domain, understanding that mechanism of action, is there, you know, what do you have? And what, you know, right. are there animal behavioral studies, assays you can show, you name it, to at least give a glimmer of, of why. And, and it could even come down to anecdote. I mean, I know one company that did a whole scrub of Arrowhead um, and realized, holy crap, we can combine a benzodiazepine with psilocybin, and it's actually incredibly effective in mitigating anxiety and nausea, you name it. Um, but at least some data point, you know, rather than kind of taking a shot in the dark, or I think there's some companies who just want to have 
something, then they'll go public mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll get a stock price pop, make a ton of money. And it feels more like a pump and dump, but I want to, I want to make sure under the hood, there's something real. Checking under the hood. How important is the character? What do you guys look for in character of the founder or the founding team? Like what are the, what are the non-qualitative things that you guys look for? So it's a really good question. I mean, A, you want to avoid a Steph Corey type situation at a way, you know, make sure they're not, you know, not a, don't drive their their employees bonkers. So there's headline risk, of course, and you're trying to assess that. B, you know, we do background checking. We talk to people in, in our, you know, in our milieu and, and try to find people who, who know that person. We actually did have an opportunity that we were incredibly intrigued by um, and did quite a bit of work on and then surfaced, um, there were just ethical concerns around the founder. And we did walk away. Um, and it probably would have been a good opportunity. And I'm sure, you know, and, and I'm sure they're going to make a lot of money. Um, but there's just, it's not worth the risk. And I think you have to, you know, there's there to your point, there's qualitative aspects to investing, not just quantitative. And if you're focused purely on return, you're going to lose your soul in this world. So definitely. Yeah, man. Quick rapid fire. What are some st- three strengths that you see on founders are just like, let me double down. And what are three weaknesses that you're just like, I know you mentioned ethical, but what are three other weaknesses that you see that you're just like, yeah. this is not, a, I'm not going to touch it. Yeah, yeah. Three strengths are scientific background, being able to speak to many facets of their, their program, you, you know, the science behind the, the compound, the pharmacology, their plans for clinical trial design, their plans for commercialization, having that, you know, having a systemic view of that and really, you know, showing thoughtfulness. And then third, I'd say is, is a demonstrating an ability to manage people as well. You know, that, that they can, I mean, as you're growing an organization, being able to manage many different people, this is very complex uh, in terms of advancing a, a compound through clinical trials and, and through to commercialization and um, making sure that someone can oversee that and delegate efficiently and, and all those factors. That's off the top of my mind. Maybe I'll, I'll think of more. In terms of negatives, I would say, yeah, ethics, Without a doubt, um, if, if there's ethical concerns, you just walk away. And I, I learned that from my days at Madison Dearborn Partners. Even we had another opportunity we, look, we looked at really, really good, and they actually made a ton of money through COVID. But we just said no. Um, you just not where it was kind of you know Harvey Weinstein level risk. We're talking, and we're just like no, you Ooh. don't. Yeah, no, it's it's it was bad. So you just you don't you don't touch it. So that's certainly one. In terms of others, I mean, cluelessness or kind of that cowboy nature of just. Sometimes you talk to people who are, I think you get the sense they're just slapping psychedelic on and they, they know it's going to get a valuation premium. But again, the moment you just start poking at things, you realize that they really, I mean, there's just not a lot there. And then, yeah, I mean, I guess I'd say, you know, if there's, if it's a very tangential background and they're trying to step into biotech, I, I struggle. The, the barrier is a lot higher. And I, I put that at least in this domain, I think there's other industries where you can sort of stumble in. And I think there's some benefit to maybe, you know, not, you know, to being an outsider and rethinking things in biotech, that's a bit tougher. In biotech, you usually see the most successful entrepreneurs being very seasoned and having been in this space for quite some time. Um, so if someone's really a true outsider and doesn't have much of a team around them. I struggle with that. So it's a weak weakness, I'd say, but uh, that's uh, in terms of what comes to mind, um, it's, I'd put that in the third category. That's a powerful list, Tim. Thanks for that, man. And so now just kind of flowing through the end of our conversation here, just a couple of personal questions. What has been your your personal experience uh, with psychedelics, right? It's like yeah. Paul Stamets has always been saying like, 
I, he gets calls and then he's like, yo, have you tried it? And they're like, no, no, no. We just see the opportunity. Yeah, you got to talk yeah. to us a little bit about your personal experience. <laughs> and if you want, I know. As, as, as much as you're comfortable here. Yeah, like, totally. To no, well, it's, it's interesting. We had looked at, um, I was helping my business partner, now business partner in, in an issue when he was looking at getting the space. We looked at seeding a, another fund because he runs a VC firm and we were like, okay, what? who do we just park our money with and, and have them manage it? Um, and, and met with, another fund sort of focused on it and um, immediately hurt, you know, when we started digging into it and talking about our own experiences and started asking them, well, what about you guys? You know, like what, what has yours been and got the answer? Oh no, we, we haven't tried it yet. You know, like we haven't, we haven't done this. It was like, wait, how do you, and I had this conversation with the CEO of, of one of our portfolio companies also who we're, we're very tight with. And we were just like, how do you get into this space without ever having tried these compounds? You know, I mean, it just kind of, blows my mind, or at least, I mean, I can see you being a passive investor, but if you're like active in the space, I don't know, just, I, I'm always surprised because having, ex, you know, experimented a bit and, and tried them in a safe setting, of course, mm-hmm. gives you a lot of perspective. Um, and so, yeah, I, I have admittedly used these in very safe settings and, and always with the guide, which I think is incredibly important. Um, I've seen cases where trips can go south. And I think we still have to appreciate the psychoactive nature of these, especially at incredibly high doses. And just to support the movement, you know, to de-risk it for other people and not, you know, not crap on the parade for everyone else. You don't want to be the guy who has the bad trip and goes crazy and pushes these underground again, you know, and there's this headline risk. So just for that, I always hide in place, but have um, admittedly worked with psilocybin, um, have, uh, you know, I, I say this 5-MeO-DMT, I think is incredibly profound as well. And I, there's not a lot of data around it, but you've got to believe there's some therapeutic efficacy there. Have also did ketamine, which is certainly above ground in, in terms of that use. Um, and, and have worked with a, a number of other ones, of course, LSD um, as well. I think that that's very common and especially in a microdose setting, it's a very interesting one. So I do have to give the advice to other people, you know, don't try this at home or, you know, do it in a legal setting and, and all the normal caveats. But um, I think it's given me a unique perspective where when you talk to a company advancing something, oh, and I, I forgot to mention MDMA. How can I forget it? I mean, that's a, that's a lovely, lovely pro-social drug and lovely intactogen and actually 2CB, interestingly enough, that was, yeah, that was uh, very interesting. But um, so it's always a weird position I'm in to you don't want to sound like the the kook who's like a druggie and, and everything. And, and I know Harriet right. always speaks about this in her podcast. So she always doesn't want to say she's done these because then you sound like the proselytizer and telling everyone, oh, you got to try this. I wouldn't put myself in that camp. I do think, you know, proceed with caution and, and have a guide and, and understand the science. And for some of these, they can be dangerous. In the case of um, 5-MeO-DMT, there's risk around that. And definitely Ibogaine. I have not tried, but there's HERG risk. So there's cardiovascular risk to that. But um, I know there's that angle, but I think at the same time, going into this, there's got to be some admission that you've done some work and it just gives you a unique perspective. When I work, talk to a company and they're trying to advance a certain compound for a certain disease, um, I can definitely sometimes just through personal experience say, okay, yeah, I, I see that. Or no, I don't. Like MDMA for couples counseling, Probably some, there probably could be something there down the road. Dude, I appreciate the empathy that you bring and the consciousness to the approach of you experimenting and sitting with these compounds because they're so powerful. And bringing that empathy to that is like great leadership. I just want to highlight that because so many different people, 
so many people are just like, oh yeah, it was super cool, super great. Like they make it more recreational. So I appreciate the consciousness that you bring. Yeah, back. it is. Yeah. yeah, as a quick aside, sorry not to interject. It is interesting. Of yeah, you have these two camps where one is in you know friends I talk to who kind of learn I'm in this field for the first time. It's like oh yeah, you know I like go to a concert or something and I trip or take acid. It's very like you know it's more pro social and and just kind of trippy and maybe a little hedonistic. And then there's the other camp of like deep inner work. Most of the time, almost every time I've, I've worked at these, it's always been more of the deep inner work side. I mean, sit with a guide, really go inward, um, some deep processing and healing, but it's not, not to poo-poo the, the more recreational and kind of fun use cases, but it's just interesting that there's two sides. I'd say I'm, I veer on the more kind of uh, psychoanalytic camp of this, which maybe is boring. I'm probably a boring person to trip with because I put my eye mask on and, and go pretty you deep. You just go deep in, yeah, with that intention. Yeah, I become a little Buddha, but yeah, that's, you know. I could just imagine you like in Buddha's house sitting there and just like, <laughs> I, just I, I, I've been there, man. I've been there and just like total, that's wonderful, brother. total bliss, but yeah. Oh, I love that, man. And thank you so much for, you know, I feel like the way that you've explained it, it's almost bringing permission for others to our listeners to kind of explore that in a safe way, right? And there's we'll put some we'll put resources on the show notes as to how to do things safely and things of that nature. And we'll talk about different concepts and show links to a bunch of different websites that show you how to proactively do this in a safe space and setting. Not to say that yeah. we're promoting drug use, but in the case that you're already there, there's going to be these guys. Agreed. You know, be my definitive caveat is you know, yeah, I, I, um, that these aren't legal. And, and um, so, but if, if that's, and I can't recommend anyone use them, I can state, you know, what has happened. Personal use, yeah. Yeah. But if, if you are at that tipping point, you know, definitely take precautions, you know, definitely have a guide in place, all those normal things. And I, I, I think I'm within decent bounds of, of, you know, saying that uh, Tim Ferriss has talked about this, Joe Rogan. So, um, and we're speaking about it now. I've spoken about my own psychedelic journeys, sitting with ayahuasca, MDMA, psilocybin, LSD. You know, I think it's important to really destigmatize it because it is just, we are people who are creating value in society. We are creating value for beyond ourselves and creating that positive impact for society. And this is just to say that it's just an agreement that we as a society may have been misguided in the sixties and seventies to have put this down as a, uh, a scheduled one. Right. And it it definitely is because like, if you look, if you think about it, like psilocybin, I think, the Imperial College of London did a study in early uh, early 2010s, and they came out saying that like alcohol is actually the most dangerous uh, compound yeah, there is, and enough. like and then, yeah, 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 and then like mushrooms are like the least harmful one. <laughs> and, like it's just like okay. Cool. Well, anyone who's tried mushrooms too, like it's tough to fathom how that you'd ever harm another person or <laughs> on on mushrooms. Like I just can't. Well, versus alcohol, I can see how someone or you know gets angry. It destroys families, right? So oh, to that totally. point, brother. Yeah. How do you see psychedelics in five years? So we're closing our eyes. We're five years ahead. Yeah. What does Tim see in the space in form of education, media, biotech, and, you know, distribution for the consumer? Yeah, definitely. Um, before I hit on that, just hitting on your last point to cap that off of, I, I think what, what you were saying about personal use, my, my biggest thing, if I could promote it here, would be if someone's tried these, where we really need to move to as a culture 
is, you know, not everyone needs to or, or should even try this. We know that, especially for, you know, people with certain mental illnesses. But I think we do need to stop drug shaming people. I think we need to stop mm. have. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, that would be my final thought there. Sorry not to answer your no, that's, a, that, that, that's a great final thought, man. Like yeah. drug shaming is very real. And um, I'm yeah, glad I that think, you brought that up. Yeah. I think it's, you know, no one should be peer pressured, uh, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, but I, we, there's so much shaming around it of like, Oh, you tried that or you tried. And there's also, you know, there's kind of superiority complexes of, Oh, well I do still, you know, I, I do ayahuasca, but I don't do other things. And, and, you know, everyone has different drugs that work for them well. So um, yeah, no shaming. In terms of where I see psychedelics five years from now, I think about this a lot because uh, uh, you're trying to spot the you're trying to spot the trends and in, in the big waves. And it's it is this question of is it going to be where we stand now? Is the better play you know on the biotech side, or is it making a long shot bet on legalization that that does play out and that's de-risked enough? My view is I think that I'll, I'll speak about it in terms of dominoes. I see following. I think the first domino will be psychedelics in a bit more of a pharmaceutical context. That's just, there's so much momentum and capital around that, that you'll have these first generation psychedelics, largely genericized forms um, being advanced, you know, and, and, you know, being commercialized by biotech businesses. And those will start to go mainstream. I mean, we'll have MDMA hit the market probably in 2022 once MAPS, Phase three trials are done. Compass Pathways, I believe, 2023, 2024, they'll likely be wrapped up. COVID has delayed that a bit, but you probably see that hitting the market by 2025. So that's kind of five years from now. Um, And then some others in the wings that are in phase two now, you'll probably start seeing those roll out um, as commercial offerings starting 2025. From there, I then think an ecosystem of clinics will really start to emerge and take hold. And I see that becoming an investable universe. So sort of this clinical infrastructure, a tech infrastructure that overlays that really becomes economically viable at that point. Once you have real products and and therapies to offer, that that makes it a lot more viable. There's people positioning now, but it's still pretty nascent. Um, Mm -hmm. Then from there, I think once consumers and I spoke to your grand, the grandma problem and all that really start to get comfortable with these, I really think legalization starts to to take hold and the prospect of even maybe federal legalization uh, more in the next decade becomes feasible and inconceivable, but I see that probably beyond the five-year mark. I, I think there's going to continue to be states that percolate in certain cities that decriminalize it, but they're going to make it's they're decriminalized, but it still makes commercial enterprise incredibly difficult still. Mm. Um, even, you know, you can't start a business in Ann Arbor or DC. You can grow mushrooms in your flower pot or whatever, but you know, it's going to be tough to start a, a dispensary. Do you, do you think? Do you think that we're going to start seeing more more doctors prescribe psilocybin instead of uh, SSRIs and antidepressants for uh, dosing? It's the million dollar question. I think it depends on what the rollout looks like. I mean, we had a lot of hope around esketamine, Janssen's esketamine, or Johnson and Johnson. They, they're the Janssen is their subsidiary, uh, and then we realized the commercial rollout of that was much more difficult than we thought. There was such an onerous REMS strategy, so risk evaluation and mitigation strategy slapped on that, that for a psychiatrist, they basically would have to, they'd have to do a 180 for their practice. And all they'd have to focus on is offering esketamine, which made it really difficult to do. I'm hoping psilocybin follows a different path. We have Compass Pathways advancing these centers of excellence, and hopefully you have designated centers where doctors 
are incentivized enough to send their patients to those centers to receive therapy. Um, and so I'm, I'm very hopeful of that. Uh, so, but the rollout will probably be complex, having these be very psychoactive, needing a clinician in place. Um, you almost have to view it less as a prescription drug and almost more like a surgery in a way. If I'm going to go into the center okay. seven hours, this is very intensive. And so the barriers to that, you know, it's, it's going to be pretty complex. And when you think about MDMA, last thought um, is that you have to get off SSRIs before you're going to use MDMA, you know, that for PTSD. And so trying to find ways to bridge that gap is going to be very complex. And it's, I think, for doctors to feel as though that that's de-risked enough, that getting someone off SSRIs and the valley you have to go through there to get them to kind of, you know, to the, to the promised land of, of a therapy that's highly efficacious, it's, you're going to have a hurdle to get over with people to get there. Now, we're invested in a company called Bionomics, which I think will help in bridging that gap. It's a, okay. it's a, they're advancing a drug called BNC210 where it doesn't contraindicate with SSRIs and they're hoping to sort of bridge that gap, you know, eventually for MDMA therapy and they're partnered with Empath Bio, which is an Atai subsidiary, but um, it'll be, it's going to be complex. I do think though, yeah, we will have a day where you go to your psychiatrist, you say, I'm depressed. And they say, Hey, I've, I've got the perfect drug for you. I'm going to write you a prescription for psilocybin therapy mm-hmm. and go and, and they're cured and, and can live healthy, productive lives. That's wonderful, brother. Cause I just, as you know, for me, microdosing on psilocybin helped me get out of like a very nasty depression that I didn't even know it was depressed, right? It yeah. was like, when I, it wasn't until <laughs> after the fact that I was like, oh shit, I was in a dark yeah. place. I know. So, yeah. yeah and, and that Which also makes that. it more complex of, you know, Michael Pond talks about the betterment of well people. Um, mm-hmm. There are people who probably don't have a formal diagnosis of depression, but I'm like, fuck man, you could use some psilocybin. <laughs> I, like I'm talking to you right now. Like I know you could just use a good trip. Like you could just use like a good, just nuclear bomb in the brain, like nice oil change. Oh, what's it called? Tim, Tim Ferriss called it uh, uh, control alt delete. Like, like, yeah. Like, yeah. Defragging, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. Just a nice reset. You know, that's why I, I love that. Pharma, Stephen Ross. That's why they have the name. So, he said, this is a special round one. It just came up for me. The question just as, as you were talking about it, what's yeah. something that's obvious to you? that it's not obvious to the world that's going to happen in this space? Two things. Two. I think one, um, that 5-MeO-DMT, there's got to be something there. I think there's going to be high therapeutic efficacy around that drug. And it's not fully accepted, at least within the academic and research community, since it's so mm-hmm. new and they want to see enough data and it's a, it's a bit more sclerotic. But I'm making a long-term anecdotal bet that there's going to be something around that compound that's incredibly effective. It's much shorter in duration of the trip, which makes it a lot more commercially viable. Um, but I, I still think it will probably have high efficacy. So that's one I'd say that probably not everyone sees it because a lot of academics would maybe disagree with me or say jury's still out. Um, the other, going back to your integration point, I think yeah, the other is probably that some of the oversight during the trip, at least the way we run it is probably overrated of having two people in a room with the patient. I think we're going to migrate to a point where we don't necessarily need that. And Eleusis, another portfolio company of ours, um, is really doing some interesting work. So they own a chain of ketamine clinics called Calypso Ketamine, and they do much more of a control room model where the patient's in their own room with privacy, and they have a clinician in a sort of control room 
monitoring multiple patients at one time. And if someone has a bad trip or a bad experience, some troubling experience, there can be an emergency button or bio, biometrics that inform the controller to come in and take care of the patient. But someone can actually be there in a bit more privacy. And I think for a lot of people, they sometimes want to go through their experience in private and not have someone there all the time. I don't think everyone wants someone there or two people that can be a little overbearing. Um, and so I do see some more optionality emerging where someone wants, if someone wants, you know, a warm, cuddly psychotherapist there, they, they can have that. Um, but if they don't, that option will become more available and you'll still have therapeutic outcomes um, without that. And that'll make it a lot more commercially viable. That's not the the standard view in the space. That's not the consensus view. I think consensus view is abundance of caution, have someone there. And I'm going a bit back on a statement I made earlier around that, but I, I think that'll open up a bit more. That's great, Tim. And thank you so much. And that's all we got for today, Tim. Thank you so much for coming on Mushroom Talk and speaking about all the things investment and the cultural movements. You brought a lot of insights. I hope our listeners will get some education and drop some knowledge. What would be the best way to follow you or your work or Paulo Santos' work uh, yeah. if anybody wants to reach out? Um, Twitter is Tim Schlitt. So just T-I-M-S-C-H-L-I-D-T if you want to follow me on Twitter. Um, but I'd say the biggest one is go to our website. Our website's just about to launch right now. We have been in stealth mode, but it is palosanto.vc. So P A L O. S-A-N-T-O dot V-C. And check that out. What a great name, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, it definitely speaks to the fact that um, we came from the underground. There's a ceremonial component to our own experiences that we really appreciate. And we're trying to bridge that gap between that and, you know, advancing these in an, a commercial way, but also an ethical way. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Tim. And uh, we'll definitely Thank have you, you back here for later, for later in the episodes for next seasons when things start rocking and rolling in the industry, brother. Yeah, would love to come back. Thanks, cheers. Guys. All right, cheers.